0: Ladies and gentlemen, we're back, and uh, we got a good show tonight. Sorry I was distracted for a few seconds there. I was looking up a citation here in uh, Tim Leary's Confessions of a Hope Fiend, and uh, this book ironically ties into the Oh, good grief. You know, you can't I I mentioned last week, you can't mute the sound on uh, YouTube anymore before you start the show, so you got to have it totally off on there, otherwise it starts playing audio. But uh, this book, ironically and interestingly, ties into this whole discussion that we've been going into lately. And while uh, Tim Leary was in Algeria, he actually went on a pilgrimage for Hassani Sabah. And it really makes all these interesting tie-ins. And, you know, I hadn't really made all the connections before. And uh, Todd and I were going through the database today. And just, you know, it's everywhere in the database, and uh, so today Todd is with me. We're going to be discussing the secret Talmud is Kabbalah Judaism, and uh, so Todd, welcome to the show.
1: Hey, thanks for having me on. Pleasure to be here.
0: I think we're going to have a great show today, and uh, it's, uh, you know contrary to a lot of things that you and I both thought, I mean, you and I both went down the wrong rabbit hole for quite a while. And um, we've been realizing that there is a whole other direction in this material. Uh, Thanks, Rick Jones. I appreciate that. Rick just threw up a $50 super chat, much appreciated. And uh, you know, so we've been digging into this topic and, it all seems to start with, well, somewhere, you know, further back than that, but a lot of it starts with Hassani Sabah. For those of you who don't know who that was, he's the guy, who, who the, the famous man on the mount. Uh, he, what was it, the Eagles, the Eagles Lodge? Eagles. yeah. Yeah, and uh, he's who would drug the orphans, and we'll be going into all of this tonight, and... He would take them into the lair and uh, show them paradise and seventy-two virgins and all of this, but it was all keyed around drugs. And then this is where we get the word assassins from, or uh, hashishians, etc. But it probably wasn't just hashish; it was probably quite a lot of other stuff. But uh, so well,
1: I've I've heard rumors that uh, it was a lot of Datura. Datura had a lot to do with it as well. So it's that that white lily flower?
0: Yeah, that grows all over the the road on the way up uh here. <laughs> <laughs> That's right, all over the place. Grows all over Southern California, uh, Datura, Jimson weed, Devil's weed, etc. So uh, you know, interesting stuff, but uh well, you wanted to kick off.
1: Well, yeah, so uh, to so just just to get everyone uh, so a little bit of background on my, my way of thinking, uh, at, before the beginning of this year, I, I was on the Jew train. All right. Everyone, I was on the, like, yo, you know, In fact, in fact
0: you and, and Lloyd had gone round and round for, for months, months. arguing over this stuff. And then one day yeah. you sat down to write Lloyd an email and you were working it out. And then you went, Oh,
1: yeah, I well I found a clue and I decided, wait a second, I'm gonna drop everything and just assume Lloyd is right. And what I have found is quite frightening. So how I how I wanna, you know, he likes to bash us over the head with Islam. So in in, in, in you know, in honor of Lloyd, I'm going to bash you over the head with a little bit of Islam before we get into the secret town. So <laughs> what what I'd like to introduce to you is your uh, your first two Muslim presidents.:
0: All right, and I'm going to show these on screen here. Let me see if I can do this. Here we go. All right. Mm-hmm. All right. So, so they they're, they're seeing it even though you can't, so go ahead.
1: So what we've got here is uh, Warren G. Harding. So Hardings, this is the top guy up here. Harding's Masonic record is extremely interesting. He was actually a master Mason for slightly less than three years. Uh, so he, he was exalted, a Royal Archmason, on January 13th, 1921, and was created a Knight Templar in Marian Campanary, number 36, on March, 21st, March 1st, 1921, shortly before being inaugurated as president. He also became a member of the Scottish Rite and received... 32nd degree in Columbus and joined Aladdin Shrine Temple. So, <clears throat> as Lloyd alluded to, the Shriners are uh, a Muslim oriented uh, sect of Freemasons. So, there's Harding, and Harding's considered uh, the worst president ever. <laughs> so, next. We've got Franklin D. Roosevelt. So he petitioned the uh, ancient accepted Scottish Rite in Albany Consistory on New York, February 28, 1929, and received his 32nd degree the same day. On March 26, 1930, he became a Shriner in Cyrus Temple, Ancient Arabic Order, Nobles of the Mystic Shrine. So those are the Shriners. So... There they are. They, I, I'm pretty sure they're back-to-back. We had one back-to-back. And uh, correct me if I'm wrong, but didn't FDR get three terms somehow mysteriously?
0: Yeah, I think you're right.
1: I don't think anybody else ever did that. So there they are. Now, I have uh, stumbled upon a book that is the uh, official history book. For the Shriners, and I just want to give you a, a little story here of one of the um, legends of their mystic shrine. So, let me get a little water here. According to the ancient ritualistic provisions in the shrine's history, it was evidently established as a political religious order and destined to become a formidable Oriental power. Its mission being to aid the distress, comfort the afflicted, protect the innocent, harmonize rank and station, overthrow fanaticism, obliterate intolerance, bring the guilty to justice, and perpetuate the welfare of mankind. Thus, they become the exponents of a secret tribunal to judge and punish the traitor, the murderer, the despoiler of innocence, the violator and desecrator of sacred vows, to apprehend, judge, and execute at one conclave, striking terror to the destroying element of crime by consigning the condemned to the rack, bowstring, or pyre of the shrine, their fleet justice leaving a purifying admonition to those who knew not the fate of the departed. The legendary history of the Oriental Shrine thus depicts one phase of the secret tribunal The grave, stern, and mass tribunal sits in solemn council, their terrible meditations and intent none could penetrate. Their purpose was as undecipherable as their identity. The culprit, defiant of their secret power, when loosed from his hempen thongs, appears arraigned for judgment and stands before the piercing gaze of the tribunal with its all-powerful council of thirteen. Doggedly sullen and undismayed by the array of block, bowstring, rack, and blazing crucibles. If guilty, he neither seeks nor expects mercy, knowing that mercy for the impious prevails not here. Their cause is justice, the palpable proofs of guilt being sure. The result is, is as immutable as God's decree, but still he, he, his innocence, he does protest. The frowning council grant one last privilege, a final proof to justify his plea by his Moslem faith. If he so dare, he advances alone to the sacred dais, and in token of his innocence, embraces the holy nymph of paradise, the hoary of the shrine. With joyous pace, the victim hastens to the colossal statue, wherein marvelous grandeur by crafty hand, beauteously carved in stone, with outstretched arms and saintly face, sweet with calm serenity, she stands, seeming even to pity from her throne. The mystic form he scarce embraces when quick as transit of a meteor, he finds his frail body wrapped as in a vice. Those horrid arms with keen and triple-edged blades nail him, powerless and quivering to her lance-clad breast, with deadly and unerring power until crushed, carved, and gory, the expiring form is rent asunder. The hoary statue swerves apart, relaxing her fiendish grasp of stone, and hurls the riven victim deep into the hideous engulfing trap below where grim, dark and loathsome may be heard the distant and monotonous rippling of the turbid carnadine waters echoing from the eternal chasms of the dead. The tribunal has done its duty. Retribution has fallen upon the faded malefactor and the vengeance of the shrine is satisfied. This is but one of the storied mysteries of the Oriental Shrine. So those are your presidents, people, and that's their legend, and it's a Muslim legend, and it's about the most satanic thing I've ever read.
0: Now, would you like me to uh, play uh, John Brennan's little talk there really quickly?
1: Yeah, go for it. All
0: right, let's do that here. So this is uh, the former head of the CIA, John Brennan, and of course he was an advisor to Obama, and that's a whole other scandal. And uh, let me just pull that over here. Hopefully I can get the audio correct here. Just a second.
2: Let's see here. But for more than three decades, I have also had the tremendous fortune to travel the world. And as part of that experience, to learn about the goodness and beauty of Islam. As a college student in the 1970s, I spent a summer traveling through Indonesia, taking in the wonderful landscape, culture, and people of Java and Bali. Despite my long hair, my earring, and my obvious American appearance, I was welcomed throughout that country in a way that is a reflection of the tremendous warmth of Islamic cultures and societies. Like the President during his childhood years in Jakarta, I came to see Islam, not how it is often misrepresented, but for what it is. How it is practiced every day by well over a billion Muslims worldwide, a faith of peace and tolerance and great diversity. And if you permit me, or I should say, Ismahli, Bad Indonesia, Safarat ila Misr, Wahunak, darast Arabia, Fi Jamna Amrikia, Fukahira, Wahada, Fi Elfwa, Fi Sanat. Elf with Tismae, or و or Sitta with Sabayin. Were Safarit illa El and Tunis, were Bad Mister, second fee El Shakal Ausit, Tokribin, Sitta Sana. Lakin <laughs> Elan <laughs> Talib, uh, لما uh, درست لكن الان uh, نسيت اكثريه اللغه uh, كسلان لسان كسلان <تصفيق> 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 متاسف متاسف لكن ممكن ان شاء الله سوف uh, ادرس عربيه مره ان شاء الله <تصفيق> <تصفيق>
1: Now, were they able to read the
2: subtitles? Yeah, I'm showing it. It's still playing. Now, here. Don't tell the folks why <laughs> who don't speak Arabic what I said, okay? <laughs> but I did spend time as an undergraduate at the American University in Cairo in the 1970s, and time spent with classmates from Egypt, from Jordan, from Palestine, and around the world, who taught me that whatever our differences of nationality, or race, or religion, or language, there are certain aspirations that we all share to get an education, to provide for our families, to practice our faith freely, to live in peace and security. And during a 25-year career in government, I was privileged to serve in positions across the Middle East as a political officer with the State Department and as a CIA station chief in Saudi Arabia. In Saudi Arabia, I saw how our Saudi partners fulfilled their duty as custodian of the two holy mosques of Mecca and Medina. I marvelled at the majesty of the Hajj, and the devotion of those who fulfil their duty as Muslims by making that privilege, that pilgrimage. And in all my travels, the city I have come to love most is Al-Quds, Jerusalem, where three great faiths come together. So much attention is paid to the divisions in that wonderful city. All right. So, yeah,
0: I just wanted to play that clip that shows that uh, our former uh, head of the CIA, our former DCI, is Islamic. And, uh, you know, that seems that way. Sure seems that way. And, of course, he was behind uh, this whole uh, scandal uh, trying to frame uh, Trump with the uh, Russia uh, distraction, et cetera. But uh, and then we have uh, well, you know, another president. You didn't mention our third Islamic president. Uh, who is of course, uh, you know, uh, uh, Barack Obama, I almost said Osama bin Laden.
1: <laughs> yeah. But hit, that story is so interesting that it would take a show all by itself.
0: Yeah. I agree with you on that, but, uh, you know, I just wanted to, uh, get that mentioned there, boy, you know, the, uh, GDL people are, are getting blisters, uh, HT and these other guys must be, you know, using every sock account they have to, uh, you know, to uh, thumb down the show today. I, I feel sorry for those guys. They're so, uh, you know, uh, uh, dishonest whatever. and nervous to to shut these shows down. But it's good to have them uh, running up the uh, view counts and everything. So welcome, guys. And, uh, you know, it's uh, good to have you here watching. Maybe some of you can learn something as well. Maybe not. But uh, welcome. And uh let's see. So let's get back to the the show notes. What did I just uh put yeah, let's,
1: let's go back to the uh the background section yeah. now. So So let's get to the meat and potatoes of what the the title of the show is. Uh The Secret Talmud and Is Kabbalah of Judaism? Because as far as I can tell, I'm going to well, i we'll, will we'll, let you decide based on what we what we find out here. So <clears throat>
0: to understand. Hold on. You're okay. Just, all right, go ahead. Sorry. Are we good now? Yeah, we're good.
1: All right. So as we're trying to understand Kabbalah, uh, um, we got to understand that it, it actually has deeper roots from, um, Merkaba. Okay. And Merkaba was, a, a mysticism supposedly to come out of the court of King Solomon and, uh, Which I don't have a very high opinion of Solomon because he built altars to Molech for his, you know, 700 uh, pagan wives. And he's actually the reason why the tribes got split up anyway, because he built temples to Molech. But these people, these these Jewish mystics, they seem to think quite highly of Solomon. And uh, so it arrives from that pagan influence, as far as I can tell. Uh, ancient paganism, uh, and probably what we'll discover is that it's really just ancient Gnosticism is what we're dealing with here. So um, to start out, I'm going to read here from uh, uh, an author named Gershom Sholem. He's considered uh, the 20th century aficionado on Kabbalah, and he's written thousands of pages on it. I've been slogging my way through some of it, but uh, what I'm going to share with you today is what I thought was important and what most people don't hear about the Kabbalah. So um, what he has to say about the origins of Kabbalah is, there is little hope that we shall ever learn the true identity of the men who were the first to make an attempt, still recognizable and describable to invest Judaism with the glory of mystical splendor. It is only by accident that certain names from among the mystics of the later period have been preserved. Thus, we hear of Joseph Ben Abba, who was the head of the rabbinical academy of Pumbeditha, I'm gonna slaughter some of these things, so pardon me, around 814, and who is said to have been versed in mystical lore. Another name which occurs with some frequency is that of Aaron Ben Samuel of Baghdad, the father of mysteries. Although his individuality disappears behind an iridescent haze of legends, there is no doubt that he was instrumental in bringing a knowledge of the mystical tradition, such as it had been, such as it had by that time become in Mesopotamia to Southern Italy and thence to the Jews of Europe. All right. So what I want to talk about real quick here is the the town of uh, Pumbaditha. So this became, um, the Jewish uh, headquarters of of religious thought and society after the fall of the second temple. And it's actually um, a community that had been around for at least 800 years, uh, 200 to 1038 AD. Uh, So most of that time it was ruled by the Sassanid empire, which is basically the Persians And they were mostly Zoroastrian, at least the royals were, but they were very tolerant of all religions, including Hinduism, Buddhism, etc. But uh, eventually, the Sassanid Empire was conquered by uh, Islam. And it was in 1038 that... Oh, where, oh, there it is, it, it, the, the Buyid dynasty of Muslims uh, tortured to death the last leader of the Jewish people there. And from then on, uh, the Jews were pretty much wiped out and they all fled to Europe. So that's the story of Pumbiditha and where it comes from. And it's in the heart of Babylon, right? So, and, it, and it's existing in a historical context that is, very rife with like pagan thought and, and, and culture. So that's, that's just the background of this time period when the Talmud is being put on paper and, and everything else. So um, in the writings of the second and third century Gnostics and in certain Greek and Coptic texts, which frequently reflect a mystical spiritualism we find a similar species of mystical anthropomorphism with references to the body of the Father or the body of truth. The fact probably is that this form of speculation originated among heretical mystics who had all but broken with rabbinical Judaism. At some date, this school or group must have blended with the rabbinical Gnosticism developed by the Merkava visionaries, i.e., that form of Jewish Gnosticism which tried to remain true to the halalic tradition. Does it not seem possible that among the mystics who wrote the Shere this figure was identified with the primordial man of contemporary Iranian speculation, which thus made its entry into the world of Jewish mysticism. So just let's make a note here. Do you see he's admitting to Iranian pagan concepts being brought into Kabbalah and Jewish mysticism. So this is this is the Merkaba of King Solomon starting to blend with the Arabs. Going a step further, we may ask whether there did not exist at any rate among the Merkaba mystics to whom we owe the preservation of the She'er Kama, a belief in a fundamental distinction between the appearance of God, the creator, the Demiurge, i.e. one of his aspects, and his indefinable essence. There is no denying the fact that it is precisely the primordial man on the throne of the Merkabah, whom the Shir Kumah calls Yotzer Bereshit, i.e. creator of the world, a significant and doubtless a deliberate designation. As is well known, the anti-Jewish Gnostics of the 2nd and 3rd centuries drew a sharp distinction between the unknown, strange, good God, and the creator, whom they identified with the God of Israel. It may be that the Kumal reflects an attempt to give a new turn to this trend of thought, which had become widespread throughout the near East by postulating something like a harmony between the creator and the true God. So and here, here we need to ask ourselves like, okay, Gnosticism. Gnosticism is built on this idea that, the world of sense things is a prison it has a creator and it's called the demiurge and it's really like a demon and in the writings of blavatsky and others it's identified as yahweh which is the god of israel so <clears throat> to to these gnostics uh, that are not jewish the 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 God of Israel is the Demiurge that is the one that is keeping us imprisoned, imprisoned to a moral law, imprisoned to being a male or a female, imprisoned, you take your pick. We're, 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 we're imprisoned. We can't, we can't have ESP. We can't jump as high as we want. We're not Neo in the matrix and we're real bummed about it. Right? So we want to break free. We got to get out of that box because we're so limited. That's how I think these people think, and that's how I think most Gnostics think, and that's how I thought when I was pretty much a Gnostic. So, I don't know any any thoughts there.
0: Uh well, you know, you and I both bought into the Gnostic thing for a while, and uh, I'm glad to be out of it personally.
1: Yes, I. I I have broken free from the realm of all sense things. And uh, you know what? I realized that that wasn't so great. I lost a buddy to it because, you know, he he thought he could go rock climbing. While he was uh, attaining gnosis.
0: And fell and died or what? Yeah. Wow. Attaining gnosis, probably high on drugs, right?
1: Oh, yeah. Tested for at least five different things.
0: Oh, great, yeah, wow,
1: <laughs> so you know he thought he could be a Superman, climb that rock, yeah, I broke free of the realm of sense things splat, wow, <clears throat> all right, so now that we've got a little bit of a definition of gnosticism, and I'm sure all of you g d l it, it should be called the Gnostic defense League, yeah, so the
0: Gnostic defense League, yeah, I thought it was the yeah. gay defense league
1: well you know, as we'll find, you know, from later on in another show, you know, it's, uh, you know, gnosis can be attained.
0: Oh. You know, you <laughs> learned something new, didn't you? <laughs> okay. Well, there's interesting, interesting connection there.
1: All right. So I'm going to start reading again from Gershom Shullam. And And again, this guy is, um, This guy's the 20th century aficionado here, and he's going to let us know what's going on.
0: Somebody said gravity is a buzz killer.
1: (laughs) Sure is. (laughs) Uh, So, a good starting point for our investigation can be obtained by scrutinizing a few of these definitions, which have won a certain authority. Dr. Rufus Jones, in his excellent studies in mystical religion, defines his subject as follows. I shall use the word to express the type of religion which puts the emphasis on immediate awareness of relation with God on direct and intimate consciousness of the divine presence. It is religion in its most acute, intense, and living stage. Thomas Aquinas briefly defines mysticism as carrito de experimentalis, as the knowledge of God through experience.
0: You're just about to
1: heavily like many mystics before him.
0: You were cutting out a little bit there. Just kind of repeat that last sentence.
1: uh, Okay. Did you guys hear the, I shall use the word to express the type of religion, which puts the emphasis on immediate and aware, immediate awareness of relations with God on direct and intimate consciousness of the divine presence. It is religion in its most acute intense and living stage. Uh, So, uh, Thomas Aquinas briefly defines mysticism as Cognito de Experimentalis, as the knowledge of God through experience. And using this term, he leans heavily, like many mystics, before him and after him on the words of the psalmist, O taste and see that the Lord is good. It is this tasting and seeing, however spiritualized it may become, that the genuine mystic desires... His attitude is determined by the fundamental experience of the inner self which enters into immediate contact with God or the metaphysical reality. What forms the essence of this experience, and how is it to be adequately described? That is the great riddle which the mystics themselves, no less than the historians, have tried to solve. For it must be said that this act of personal experience, the systematic investigation and interpretation Of which forms the task of all mystical speculation is of a highly contradictory and even paradoxical nature. Certainly, this is true of all attempts to describe it in words and perhaps where there are no longer words of the act itself. What kind of direct relation can there be between the creator and his creature, between the finite and the infinite? And how can words express an experience for which there is no adequate simile in this finite world of man? Yet it would be wrong and superficial to conclude that the contradiction implied by the nature of mystical experience betokens an inherent absurdity. It will be wiser to assume, as we shall often have occasion to do in the course of these lectures, that the religious world of the mystic can be expressed in terms applicable to rational knowledge only with the help of paradox. Among the psychologist G. Stratton in his Psychology of Religious Life has laid particular stress on this essential conflict in religious life and thought, even, if it, even in its non-mystical form. It is well known that the descriptions given by the mystics of their peculiar experiences and of the God whose presence they experience are full of paradoxes of every kind. It is not the least baffling of these paradoxes to take an instance which is common to Jewish and Christian mystics, that God is frequently described as the mystical nothing. I shall not try now to give an interpretation of this term to which we shall have to return. I only want to stress the fact that this particular reality, which the mystic sees or tastes, is of a very unusual kind. All right. So there's a lot going on here. But it, it's, it's letting us know that paradox is the fundamental reality of these people. Okay? Okay. It's, it is, for lack of a better term, you know, like the seal of Solomon, which I like to repeat, I don't think highly of, has an upside down and a right side up triangle, right? So it's this union of of opposites that is mysticism. To the general history of religion, this fundamental experience is known under the name of Unio mystica. Or mystical union with God. The term, however, has no particular significance. Numerous mystics, Jews as well as non Jews, have by no means represented the essence of their ecstatic experience, the tremendous uprush and soaring of the soul to its highest plane as a union with God. To take an instance, the earliest Jewish mystics who formed an organized fraternity in Talmudic times and later described their experience in terms derived from the diction addiction characteristic of their age they speak of the ascent of the soul to the celestial throne where it obtains an ecstatic view of the majesty of God and the secrets of his realm a great distance separates these old Jewish Gnostics from the Hasidic mystics one of whom said there are those who serve God with their human intellect and others whose gaze is fixed on nothing he who is granted this supreme experience loses the reality of his intellect But when he returns from such contemplation to the intellect, he finds it full of divine and inflowing splendor. And yet, it is the same experience which both are trying to express in different ways. This leads to a further consideration. It would be a mistake to assume that the whole of what we call mysticism is identical with that personal experience which is realized in the state of ecstasy or ecstatic meditation Mysticism as a historical phenomenon comprises much more than this experience, which lies at its root. There is a danger in relying too much on speculative definitions of the term. The point I should like to make is this, that there is no such thing as mysticism in the abstract. That is to say, a phenomenon or experience which has no particular relation to other religious phenomena. So, I think what we're we're saying here is that he's, he's negating the fact that like, you can be your own, like your own religion, like they're preaching to everyone to have basically, you know, know, your own little idea, your own personal hooray. You know, I found some gnosis and I'm going to live my life on this. It's saying that, that this is a really deep thing that is based on a, a meditative experience it's it's based on something not rational right is what i would like to say
0: yeah so they create this intentional paradox to avoid rationality basically to well essentially to split the personality
1: right it, to, to split to get to free themselves from the world of sense things so like where you're you're free of any of your own personality even you don't you're not even really you anymore it's that ego death kind of the motif so um it's not it, it and so we don't really know a whole lot about from 800 uh when they basically had to flee for 800 to a thousand, they had to flee to Europe because of the Islamic invasion uh, of the Sunnis. Cause a lot of the, some of the time the, the, the Shia were okay with the Jewish mystics. They, they let them operate and didn't, and didn't give them too much of a hard time as long as the Shia were in charge. But it was when the Sunni moved in that um, things got bad for them and they had to, had to run and a lot of their stuff is lost. So, uh, it's not until about twelve hundred that we get some some good stuff, and we get to really take a look at at how how Jewish Gnosticism has evolved. So, and and so that, that's another thing. Let's let's make the point here. Jewish Gnosticism is not Judaism. I, they can they can put as many Jewish terms on it they want, but it doesn't really matter. And we'll find out later in the reading that it doesn't really matter. right? I just want to make that point. These these are not Jews. These are Jews we are not Jews.
0: Right. Well, Revelation 3.9, those who say they are Jews and are not, but do lie. So then who are these people that are hiding behind Judaism and calling themselves Jews so that the Jews get the blame for whatever they're doing when they're not Jews, essentially? Would you agree with that?
1: Uh, yes. Yes. And um, I kind of feel like a lot of them got, you know, they were led down a garden path, you know, because they didn't accept the Messiah. And a lot of them have been tricked. And in fact, the, I mean, honestly, the guy who wrote this book, okay, strangely enough, was a member of the Zionist party in Nazi Germany. And he happens to be one of the few who escaped. we'll go into that some other day. (laughs) All right. So as from the year 12.
0: Garrett's asking, when we refer to the Bible, are we referring to the KJV? Yeah, we usually use the KJV.
1: I think the KJV is the good standard for everything. But I mean, just look at it, dude. The original KJV had unicorns in it. Okay, bro. So like. You're talking about the uh,
0: 1611? Yeah. Yeah.
1: Well. Yeah got unicorns in it so
2: i i have a copy perfect. of that
0: i'll have to go look it up i have the 1611 around here oh all right all right so and uh asking. somebody's asking if our notes for this episode are going to be available for download
1: oh, I, I don't i don't mind i mean i'd prefer to give you the links to all the books i read so you could read them yourself
0: right well there's that go ahead
1: all right, so 1200 is when we start finding out the, the real meat and potatoes of what's going on in uh, in Kabbalah. So as from the year 1200, the Kabbalists begin to emerge as a distinct mystical group, which while still not numerically significant, had nonetheless attained considerable prominence in many parts of Southern France and Spain. The main tendencies of the new movement are clearly defined and the modern student may without difficulty the traces development from the early stages, about 1200 to the golden age of Kabbalism in Spain at the close of the 13th and early 14th centuries. An extensive literature has preserved for us the highlights of thought and personalities dominating the new mysticism, which for five or six generations was to exercise an ever-increasing influence on Jewish life. Some of the outstanding leaders, it is true, are but lightly sketched and we have not sufficient data to give us a clear picture of them all. But research of the past 30 years has brought an unexpected harvest of illuminating facts. Nor must it be forgotten that each of the leading figures had his own clearly defined physiognomy. And there was no vagueness of outline to lead to confusion of identity. So <laughs> just as a side note, I don't think I said it right, but the physiognomy, yeah, the physiognomy that is, is a very interesting word because Pope Ratzinger used that word in his last uh, last letter to describe the Jesuit Pope that he has a physiognomy. So I kind of think that's strange, but neither here nor there. Had clearly defined physiognomy and there was no vagueness of outline to lead to confusion of identity. The same clear lines of demarcation apply only to the tendencies, each of which can be distinguished by terminology as well as by the nuance of its mystic thought. This demarcation is intelligible enough when we review the growth of mystic tradition, teaching by word of mouth and implication rather than assertion was the rule. The numerous allusions found in this field of literature, such as I cannot say more, I have already explained to you by word of mouth, this is only for those familiar with the secret wisdom, are not mere flights of rhetoric. This vagueness, indeed, is the reason why passages have remained obscure to the present day. In many cases, whispers and that in esoteric hints were the only medium of transmission. It is therefore not surprising that such methods should lead to innovations, sometimes startling, and that differentiate differentiations arose between the various schools even the devout pupil who leaned heavily on the tradition of his master found before him a wide field for interpretation and amplification if he were so inclined nor should it be forgotten that the primary source was not always a mere mortal supernatural illumination also plays its part in the history of kabbalism and innovations are made not only on the basis of new interpretations of ancient lore but as a result of fresh inspiration or revelation or even of a dream. So, uh, uh, (laughs) uh, so we still don't this. So yes, there are things that the Jews aren't telling us. Okay. There are, are, but this is true of any secret organization that has an occult school. But what I really want to make a point here is, is that, they not all rabbis are like this Th- these are a few people that are like this okay it yeah it took on shape and form in the minds but notice the words i use there: shape and form so they took their teachings and they like the symbology maybe and the you know the fanciful stories that the guy may come up with but they're not into like sitting around doing weird things to like bring themselves into a non-rational state of mind okay so i want to make that point there's they, there's not a bazillion of them out there these are rare people these kabbalists with their secret texts and all the rest of it and and guys there is no secret talmud the talmud is the secret talmud okay the talmud is the secret talmud there are nine versions you can go find them all right it,
0: and none of them make, uh, none of them say the things that uh, these frauds claim that they say. You can go in and read them and fact check them and check the different versions and the different translations. And none of them, uh, you know, and none of these so-called quotes are hidden. And you can find the one lines, but they're whole legalese discussions, as we've already discussed.
1: Right, right. And, and so what we're going to find out is that the Talmud was used as a meditative icon okay that's what it was and, and along with the torah and other texts it doesn't it doesn't really matter what text you use is what we'll come to find out but they used the torah and the talmud and they were used the normal standard torah and talmud there's no secret torah there's no secret talmud they just have a certain way of interpreting it and we're going to find out, out all right
0: all right which page are we on now
1: Uh, we're still in the background. Uh, I'm at the, the spot where we got a nice big green line here. Got it. Okay. Tradition and intuition are bound together. And this would explain why Cobblism could be deeply conservative and intensely revolutionary. All right. So all you, E. Michael Jones, there you go. They're admitting they're intensely revolutionary but guess what? They're Gnostics. They're not Jews. Right. Gnostics. Okay, guys? The Gnostics are intensely revolutionary. Okay? So that that's that's what I just want to really rub that in. They're Gnostics. All right.
0: So now how how is it? I mean, obviously the Jews published the Zohar, and that becomes the the main thing that's considered Kabbalism,
1: but it's not, right? Right, okay, so, so yes, so the Zohar is what is called uh, rational Kabbalism, or rabbinical Kabbalism, okay? And we're going to get into this guy called uh, Abu LaFia, and he was, considered himself the paradox of Mamadi's Okay. And, and of the Zohar and he, he came up at the exact same time. So, so yes. So the Zohar is a rational, uh, rabbinical, uh, Kabbalah. Okay. It's not, it's not the non-rational, it still has not, it still has got a lot of Gnosticism in it. All right. I'm not going to say that it's not but it's it's a more rational outlook. It's more rather concerned. than the
0: split personalities scramble your brains for a uh, spiritual connection with Satan type stuff.
1: Yeah, exactly. They they weren't they weren't into yoga and breathing and you know like staying up all night and self-flagellating and yeah, yeah. that
0: now, you know, another thing that we should point out is that the Kabbalah, as we have it today, came out of southern France and Spain during the time that it was occupied by Islam.
1: Uh, well, I'm, I'm okay. I haven't got that figured out just yet. It's so, it's such a, look, it's such a big, it's such a big story and so many data points to have to try and keep your head <laughs> at one time. It's really hard. So, all right, let's, let's keep going here because we got a lot to cover. So, in the opening lecture, I referred to the fact that Jewish mystics are inclined to be reticent about the hidden regions of the religious life, including the sphere of experiences generally described as ecstasy, mystical union with God and the like. Experiences of this kind lie at the bottom of many Kabbalistic writings, though not, of course, of all. So, see, it's not, all, there's lots of them, but not all. Sometimes, however, this fact is not even mentioned by the author. Of one bulky volume, Rabbi Mordecai Ashkenazi's book Eshel Abraham, I have been able to prove, for instance, that it is written against a background of visionary dreams. But for the fact that one of the author's notebooks, a kind of mystical diary, has come down to us, it would be impossible to guess this, for it is in vain that one looks for a single allusion to the source of his ideas. The treatment of the subject remains thoroughly strictly objective. Other Kabbalists deal at length with the question of the individual's approach to mystical knowledge without any reference to their own experience. But even writings of this kind, if they really are manuals of more advanced stages of mystical practice and technique, have seldom been published. To this class belongs, for instance, a penetrating analysis of various forms and stages of mystical rapture and ecstasy written by Rabbi Dov Bayer, son of the famous Rabbi Schnurz Zalman of Lodi. Yeah, as you can tell, I'm so Jewish. The founder of Chabad, Hasidism. In his Kuntras, ha hit the paluth roughly translated, an inquiry into ecstasy. All right, so, so, he's saying that, that most of the stuff that this, that of these mystical experiences and methods, they don't get published. It's mostly by word of mouth. Yes, there are secrets. There's a secret oral tradition of how to interpret the Talmud and the Torah. Okay? They're not a different Torah, not a different Talmud. Uh, all right. Or take the case of famous uh, Kabbalist Rabbi Chaim Vital. Calabrese, the leading disciple of Rabbi Isaac Luria himself, one of the central figures of later Kabbalism. This celebrated mystic is the author of an essay called Shirei Kedusha, i.e. the Gates of Holiness, which includes a brief and easily comprehensible introduction into the mystical way of life, beginning with a description of certain indispensable moral qualities and leading up to a whole compendium of Kabbalistic ethics. All right, well, I want to stop real right here too, okay? So these Kabbalists, especially the earliest ones, they are very concerned with uh, being pure and holy and upright people according to the Torah. They're not into being, you know, having sex with a bunch of women. They're not into, uh, you know, eating babies. You know, that that all comes later, okay? They came later, but even then... It's the whole Shabbat I see. That's a different story. So I just want to say that they had a high concern of being holy and pure. And that one of the reasons why they kept it from people is because they didn't want any old schmuck doing it. They wanted someone who understood the rules to the game as they wanted it played. All right. The first three chapters of the little book have been printed many times. And on the whole, they make an interesting reading. So far, so good, but Vital has added a fourth chapter, in which he sets out in detail various ways of imbuing the soul with the Holy Spirit and prophetic wisdom, and which, by virtue of its copious quotations from older authors, is really an anthology of the teachings of the older Kabbalists on the technique of ecstasy. You will not, however, find it in any of the printed editions of the book. In its place, the following words have been inserted. Thus speaks the printer. This fourth part will not be printed for it is all holy names and secret mysteries, which it would be unseemly to publish. And in fact, this highly interesting chapter has survived in only a few handwritten copies. It is the same or almost the same with other writings which describe either ecstatical experiences or the technique of preparing oneself for them. Still more remarkable is the fact that even when we turn to the unpublished writings of Jewish mystics, we find that the ecstatic experience does not play the all-important part one might expect. It is true that the position is somewhat different in the writings of the early mystics who lived before the development of Kabbalism and whose ideas have been outlined in the second lecture. Instead of the usual theory of mysticism, we are treated in these documents of Jewish Gnosticism to enthusiastic descriptions of the soul's ascent to the celestial throne and of the objects it contemplates. In addition, the technique of producing this ecstatic frame of mind is described in detail. In later Kabbalistic literature, these aspects tend more and more to be relegated to the background. The soul's ascension does not, of course, disappear altogether. The visionary element of mysticism, which corresponds to a certain psychological disposition, breaks through again and again. But on the whole, Kabbalistic meditation and contemplation takes on a more spiritualized aspect. All right. So this this is a the the background of where we we've got Kabbalah from. It comes from Merkaba. Uh, it, it develops uh, in Babylon amongst an extremely diverse uh, religious culture, uh, where many different uh, pagan occult practices were taking place, and. We have the official guy Of Kabbalism in the 20th century Telling us that they're Gnostics So I I just want to say yes we've got a secret There's a secret to the Talmud There are secret writings of the Jews You're right you were so right they're keeping something From you it's true and that's That the Jews who are not Jews are Gnostics
0: (laughs) The Jews who are not Jews are Gnostics And then they take the Talmud and Torah and religious texts, and they switch the letters around and use gematria to meditate on it and uh, scramble their brains and create split personalities and pseudo religious experiences. Would, would that be accurate?
1: Uh, yeah, I mean we're we're gonna read all about it here pretty soon. But this, this is it, it. So this is about a personal experience with God okay with what they're calling the true God okay so remember the anti-Jewish Gnostics from before Islam even existed uh, they identified Yahweh as the 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 prison warden of this realm and he had to be surpassed now the Merkabah people, they're focused on the name of God, which is, you know, the Tetragrammaton, which is Yahweh. And they they never gave that up on, until it, we will find out that they had to give it up because, well, you'll see. God tells them himself. So, so this is so. who i want to talk about now is a very 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 influential kabbalist that comes uh, from the golden age of kabbalism and he he's considered a contemporary of maimonides he he considers himself the perfection of maimonides work uh the guide to the perplexed and uh, something else so I'm going to tell you a little story. Uh, we're going to go into his background here a little bit, and then we're going to go into uh, his teachings. And there's some really amazing bombshells in here. Considering all the aforementioned facts, it is hardly surprising that the outstanding representative of ecstatic Kabbalism has also been the least popular of all the great Kabbalists. Okay, no, it's the the. the the most influential was the least popular at the time. Okay. These aren't rampant people aren't Jews running around every corner who are secret Kabbalists. Okay. I refer to Abraham Abu Lafia, whose theories and doctrines will form the main subject of this lecture by a curious coincidence, which is perhaps rather more than a coincidence. Abu Lafia's principal works and the Zohar were written almost simultaneously. It is no exaggeration to say that each marks the culminating point in the development of two opposing schools of thought in Spanish Kabbalism, schools which I should like to call the ecstatic and the theosophical. Of the latter, I shall have something to say in the following lectures. For all their differences, the two belong together. Only if both are understood do we obtain something like a comprehensive picture of Spanish Spanish Kabbalism. Unfortunately, not one of Abu Lafia's numerous and often voluminous treatises has been published by the Kabbalists, while the Zohar runs into 70 or 80 traditions. Uh, this is kind of why I chose this guy, because, he, you know, everyone can get a hold of the Zohar, but we're going to learn about this guy. All right. Not until Jelinek, one of the small band of 19th century Jewish scholars who probed deeper into the problem of Jewish mysticism published three of his minor writings and some extracts from others. Did any of them appear in print? This is all the more remarkable as Abu Lafia was a very prolific writer who on one occasion refers to himself as the author of 26 Kabbalistic and 22 prophetic works. Of the former, many still exist. I know of more than 20. And it is a fact that a few among them enjoy a great reputation among Kabbalists to this day. While some of the more orthodox Kabbalists, such as Rabbi Jehuda Hayat, attacked Abu Lafia with vehemence and warned their l- readers against his books, their criticism appears to have aroused only a faint echo. At any rate, Abu Lafia's influence as a guide to mysticism continued to remain very great. He owed this to the remarkable combination of logical power pellucid style deep insight and highly colored abstruseness which characterizes his writings since as we shall have occasion to see he was convinced of having found the way to prophetic inspiration and from there the true knowledge of the divine he took pains to use a simple and direct style which went straight to the heart of every attentive reader he went so far as to include among his works a number of what one might call manuals which not only set out his theory but also constitute a guide to action. In fact, they can be practiced so easily as to go far beyond his intentions. The point is, though, the point is that although Abu Lafi himself never thought of going beyond the pale of rabbinic jewelry, his teachings can be put into effect by practically everyone who tries. That probably is also one of the reasons why the Kabbalists refrained from publishing them. Very likely they feared that once this technique of meditation, which had a very broad appeal, became publicly known, it would its use would no longer be restricted to the elect. Certainly, the successes of Abu Lafia's writing made the ever-present danger of a clash between the mystical revelation and that of Mount Sinai seem even seem more real than ever. All right, so so do you see that? Let's let's read that again. So Abu Lafia's writing made the ever-present danger of a clash between the mystical revelation and that of Mount Sinai. So, so Mount Sinai is where the Jewish, where Moses went up and met God and got the commands, right? So there this guy Abu Lafia made it real. Like, no, we're really gonna we're really gonna go beyond the Torah and, and the Talmud now. Thus, the whole school of practical mysticism, which Abu Lafia himself called prophetic, prophetic Kabbalism, continued to lead an underground life. By withholding his writings from the public, the Kabbalists undoubtedly sought to eliminate the danger that people might go in for ecstatic adventures without due preparation and lay dangerous claims to visionary powers. Generally speaking, lay mystics, self-taught and untutored by rabbinism, have always been a potential source of heretical thought. Jewish mysticism tried to meet this danger by stipulating in principle that entry into the domain of mystical thought and practice should be reserved to rabbinic scholars. In actual fact, however, there has been no lack of Kabbalists who either had no learning whatsoever or lacked the proper rabbinic training. Thus enabled to look at Judaism from a fresh angle, these men frequently produced highly important and interesting ideas. And so there grew up side by side with the scholarly Kabbalah of the rabbis, another line of prophetic and visionary mystics. The pristine enthusiasm of these early, early ecstatics frequently lifted the heavy lid of rabbinic scholasticism and for all their readiness to compromise occasionally came into conflict with it. It is also worth pointing out that during the classical period of Kabbalism, i.e. up to 1300 AD, as distinct from later periods, its representatives were as a men whom their contemporaries regarded as outstanding rabbis. Great Kabbalists, who also contributed to strictly rabbinical literature, men like Moses, non or Solomon ben Adret, were rare. Yet the Kabbalists were, in the great majority, men of rabbinic education. Lafi remarks an exception Having had little contact with higher rabbinic learning, all the more extensive, however, was his knowledge of contemporary philosophy, and his writings, especially those of a systematic character, show him to have been, by the standards of his age, a highly erudite man. All right, so like, let's just again, you know, this is Abu La'fia wasn't very well liked or known in his day, and. I bet any normal Jew if they, you know, heard what this guy was going to tell him to do probably wouldn't be into it either. So, about Abu Laufey, about Abu Lafia's life and his person, we are informed almost exclusively by his own writings. Abraham ben Samuel Abu Lafia was born in Saragossa in 1240 and spent his youth in Tudela in the province of Navarre. His father taught him the Bible with his commentaries as well as grammar and some Mishnah and Talmud. When he was 18 years old, he lost his father. Two years later, he left Spain and went to the Near East in order, as he writes, to discover the legendary stream Sambation beyond which the lost 10 tribes were supposed to dwell. So I want to take a pause here real quick because so he, he went to the East to go discover the legendary stream Sambation. Now, uh, it doesn't Leary go off on, you know, you brought it up in the beginning. He, he went on a pilgrimage, but w- wasn't his, his goal to find Shambhalaya or some crazy thing like that? Yes it, or no?
0: Uh, you're asking me? I'm not, I don't remember.
1: All right, all right. Well, anyway, so this guy, this guy, when he was 20 years old, with not much of a very good education and, you know, the, everything else. He, he went for five years. Uh, well, he left to go to the Near East. All right. So warlike disturbances in Syria and Palestine soon drove him back from Acre to Europe, where he spent about 10 years in Greece and Italy. During these tra- years of travel, he steeped himself in philosophy and conceived for Mamonides an admiration that proved lo- lifelong. For him, there was no antithesis between mysticism and the doctrines of Maimonides. He rather considered his own mystical theory as the final step forward from the guide of the perplexed, to which he wrote a curious mystical commentary. This affinity of the mystic with the great rationalist has its astounding parallel, as the most recent research has shown in the relationship of the great Christian mystic, Meister Eichhardt, to Maimonides by whom he seems to be much more influenced than was any scholastic before him. <clears throat> All right. So according to him, oh, well, in the same way, Abu Lafia tries to connect his theories with those of Maimonides. According to him, only the guide and the book of creation together represent the true theory of Kabbalism. Coincidentally, these studies, he seems to have been deeply occupied with the Kabbalistic doctrines of his age without, however, being overmuch impressed by them. So you see what the guy did there? He took the whole everyone else's rational Kabbalism, uh, you know, Maimonides inspired, and he tossed them out the window and he only kept two books uh, from traditional Kabbalism and called that the real thing. Coincidentally, with these studies, he seems to have been deeply occupied with the Kabbalistic doctrines, okay, without being overly impressed by them. About 1270, he returned to Spain. All right, so while he was doing that, guess where he would look. So notice notice how the author is giving us a hint. I think it's a hint. He says that he's talking about during these years of travel, he steeped himself in the philosophy of Maimonides. Well, okay. While he was in the land of the Arabs in, in Islamic territory, he, he throws out every last book except for two from Kabbalism. Now, you tell me if that doesn't kind of say something about how he's being inspired on his little trip to the Near East trying to find mystic Sambation. About 1270, he returned to Spain for three or four years during which he immersed himself completely in mystical research. In Barcelona, he began to study the book Yetzirah and 12 commentaries to it showing both philosophic and Kabbalistic inclinations. Here too, he seems to have come in contact with a conventicle, the members of which believed they could gain access to the profoundest secrets of mystical cosmology and theology by the three methods of Kabbalah being gematria, Khan and Timura. Abu Lafia especially mentions one Baruch Togar- Togarmi, presenter as his teacher who initiated him into the true meaning of the Sefer Yetzirah. We still possess a treatise on the, of this Kabbalist, the keys to Kabbalah, about the mysteries of the book Yetzirah. Most of them, he says, he felt not entitled to publish nor even to write down. I want to write it down, and I'm not allowed to. I do not want to write it down and I cannot entirely desist. So I write and I pause and I allude to it again in later passages. And this is my procedure. Abu Lafia himself at times wrote in this vein so typical of mystical literature by immersing himself in the mystical technique of his teacher. Abu Lafia found his own way. It was at the age of 31 in Barcelona that he was overcome by the prophetic spirit. Prophetic spirit. He obtained knowledge of the true name of God and had visions of which he himself, however, says in 1285 that they were partly sent by the demons to confuse him so that he groped about like a blind man at midday for 15 years with Satan to his right hand. Yet on the other hand, he was entirely convinced of the truth of his prophetic knowledge. (laughs) So, all right, He, he left. He left to go to the Near East. He tosses everything out comes back, but then finds a, a secret society of Kabbalists, joins them, and then he he has his his little mystic experience here, which he then says was from demons and Satan chased him for fifteen years, but then later on he decided it wasn't Satan and his demons. So I I don't I don't know. That seems kind of strange. He traveled for some time in Spain expounding his new doctrine but in 1274, he left his native country for the second and last time, and from then on led a vagrant life in Italy and Greece. He became the author of prophetical writings, wherein he prefers to designate himself by names of the same numerical value as his original name, Abraham. He prefers to call himself Raziel or Zechariah. Only in the ninth year, after the beginning of his prophetic visions, he began, as he says himself, to compose distinctly prophetic writings, although he had written before that time other tracts on different branches of science, among them writings on the mysteries of Kabbalah. In the year 1280, inspired with his mission, he undertook a most venturesome and unexplained task. He went to Rome to present himself before the Pope and to confer with him in the name of Jewry. It seems that at that time he nursed messianic ideas. Well, may he have... read of such a mission of the Messiah to the Pope in a then very widely known booklet. This contained the disputation of the famous Kabbalist Moses ben Naaman with the apostate Pablo Christianity in the year 1263. Here, Naamanes said, when the time of the end will have come, the Messiah will at God's command come to the Pope and ask of him the liberation of his people. And only then will the Messiah be considered really to have come, but not before that. Abu Abulafia himself relates that the Pope had given orders when Raziel would come to Rome to confer with him in the name of Jewry, to arrest him and not to admit him into his presence at all, but to lead him out of town and there to burn him. But Abu Abulafia, although informed of this, paid no attention, but rather gave himself up to his meditations and mystical preparations, and on the strength of his visions, wrote a book which he later called Book of Testimony in remembrance of his miraculous rescue. For as he prepared himself to come before the Pope, two mouths, as he obscurely expressed himself, grew on him. And when he entered the city gate, he learned that the Pope, it was Nicholas III, had suddenly died during the night. Abu La'fia was held in the College of the Franciscans for 28 days, but was then set free. Abu Lafia then wandered about Italy for a number of years. Of these, he seemed to have spent several in Sicily where he remained longer than any other place. Almost all of his extant works were written during this Italian period, particularly between the years 1279 and 1291. We are altogether ignorant of his fate after the year 1291. We are altogether, okay, uh, of his prophetic or inspired writings, only his apocalypse, Sefer Ha the Book of the Sign, a strange and not altogether comprehensible book, has survived. On the other hand, most of his theoretical and doctrinal treatises are still extant, some of them in a considerable number of manuscripts. He seems to have made many enemies by claiming prophetical inspiration and antagonizing his contemporaries in various other ways, for he often complains of hostility and persecution, He mentions denunciations by Jews to Christian authorities, which may perhaps be explained by the fact that he represented himself as a prophet to Christians as well. He writes that he found among them some who believe in God more than the Jews, to whom God had sent him first. In two places, Abu Lafia tells of his connection with non-Jewish mystics. Once he relates, he talked with them about the three methods of the interpretations of the Torah, literal, allegoric, and mystic. And he noted their agreement with one another when conversing with them confidentially. And I saw that they belong to the category of the pious of Gentiles and that the words of the fools of whatever religion need not be heeded for the Torah has been handed over to the masters of true knowledge. So, so there, there, there it is. There's, there's three ways of interpreting the the, the Torah and the Talmud. It's literal allegoric and mystic so it, we'll we'll get a little bit more into that, but that's that's the secret one the the real thing the one you everyone you can find is is the secret another time tells of a dispute with a Christian scholar with whom he had made friends and in whose mind he had what, implanted. what
0: page are we on now on these notes here
1: uh we're at Abu Lafia intro um we're at the very bottom just below the big left hand side block of um highlight Yellow. okay yeah in whose mind he had implanted the desire for the knowledge of the name of god and it is not necessary to reveal more about it so so what i'm saying here is that this mystic as this mystic who went and and to the near east and I believe was corrupted by Muslim ideas, then comes back and starts corrupting Christians uh, with his ideas. These connections of Abu La'fia's do not, however, testify to a special inclination to Christian ideas as some scholars have assumed. On the contrary, his antagonism to Christianity is very outspoken and intense. He sometimes indeed intentionally makes use among many other associations A formula which sounds quite Trinitarian, immediately giving them a meaning which has nothing whatsoever to do with the Trinitarian idea of God. But his predilection for paradox, as well as his prophetic pretensions, alienated him from the Kabbalists of a more strictly orthodox orientation. And indeed, he acutely criticizes the Kabbalists of his times and their symbolism insofar that it is not backed by individual mystical experience. On the other hand, some of his writings are devoted to the refutation of attacks directed against him by Orthodox Kabbalists. But poverty, exile, and imprisonment were powerless to make Abu Lafia a proud and unbending spirit, Abandon the standpoint to which his personal experience of things divine had led him. In the preface to one of his works, the main part of which has been lost, he compares his mission and his place among his contemporaries with that of the prophet Isaiah. He tells how a voice called him twice, Abraham, Abraham. And he continues, I said, here, I, here am I. Thereupon he had instructed me in the right way, woke me from my slumber, and inspired me to write something new. There had been nothing like it in my day. He realized only too well that his gospel would make enemies for him among the Jewish leaders. Nevertheless, he submitted to this. Nevertheless, he submitted to this. And here's a quote. And I constrained my will and dared to reach beyond my grasp. They called me heretic and unbeliever because I had resolved to worship God in truth and not walk as those who walk in darkness, sunken in the abyss. They in their kind would have delighted to engulf me in their vanities and their dark deeds. But God forbid that I should forsake the way of truth for that of falsehood. So <clears throat> look what he just did there. He said, I constrained my will. As we've been going over Logos versus Will. And and I'm you guys should look up Ratzinger's paper on Logos versus Will. It's a really good. It's a really good paper. Yet for all his pride in his achievement of prophetic inspiration and his knowledge I, of the great name.
0: Somebody asked how you spell that. Will you want to spell that his name? Well
1: Abu Lafia? Yeah. A B U L A F I A. Wait, did I get that right? A B U L A F I A. All right. Okay, yet for all his pride in the achievement of prophetic inspiration and his knowledge of the great name of God, there was combined in his character meekness and a love of peace. Jelinek rightly points out that his moral character must be estimated very highly when accepting disciples to his Kabbalah. He is extremely fastidious in his requirements as to a high morality and steadiness of character. And it may be concluded from his writings, even in their ecstatic parts, that he himself possessed many of the qualities he asked for in others. All right. So there he is. That's the introduction to Abu LaFia. So now what we're going to get into is uh, his practice. Like, So what, what is it that he's teaching people to do? I shall now try to give a brief synthetic description, one after the other, of the main points of his mystical theory, his doctrine of the search for ecstasy and for prophetic inspiration. Its basic principles have been upheld with varying modifications by all those among the Kabbalists who found in Abu Latviyah a congenial spirit, and its characteristic mis- mixture of emotionalism and rationalism sets its seal on one of the main trends of Kabbalism.
0: And isn't that what we see with the uh, moral relativists right there? You know, trying to you know, they they try to combine uh, emotionalism and rationalism, or or, neg- or or neglect either one, right? Right.
1: And but notice again, it's a paradox.
0: Right, of course.
1: It's another it's another attention. Abu Lafia's aim, as he himself has expressed it, is to unseal the soul, to untie the knots which bind it. All right. So you know, we're gonna make it, a, this is in it, when you're making your hajj uh, to Mecca, during your trip, you're not allowed to tie knots. All right. Don't tie your shoes. Yeah, I think you have to wear sandals, don't you? I don't know. This, I asked Lloyd. I said, Lloyd, look it up. What about what about tying knots (laughs) in Islam? And that's what, and you're not supposed to tie knots on the Hajj. (laughs) All the inner forces and the hidden souls in man are distributed and differentiated in the bodies. It is, however, in the nature of all of them that when their knots are untied, they return to their origin, which is one without any duality, and which comprises the multiplicity. The untying is, as it were, the return from multiplicity and separation towards the original unity, as a symbol of the great mystic liberation of the soul from the feathers of sensuality. The untying of the knots occurs also in the theosophy of Northern Buddhism, Only recently, a French scholar published a Tibetan didactic tract, the title of which may be translated, Book on Untying Knots. So so here's another thing that I would like to point out is um, if you take this guy in Italy and then you take the guy in Tibet uh, and they're both talking about tying knots and both that religion had gone east the jewish has gone east and learned about untying knots and the buddhists well they had gone west now they're learning how to untie knots i don't know i don't know i don't know maybe it's the buddhists who influence islam that's a know.
0: that's a stretch kidding
1: <laughs> all right so what does this symbol mean in Abu Lafi's terminology? It means that there are certain barriers which separate the personal existence of the soul from the stream of cosmic life, personified for him in the intellectus agents of the philosophers, which runs through the whole of creation. There is a dam which keeps the soul confined within the natural and normal borders of human existence and protects it against the flood of the divine stream which flows beneath it or all around it. The same dam, however, also prevents the soul from taking cognizance of the divine. The seals, which are impressed on the soul, protect it against the flood and guarantee its normal functioning. Why is the soul, as it were, sealed up? Because, answers Abu La'fia, the ordinary day-to-day life of human beings, their perception of the sensible world, fills and impregnates the mind with multitude of sensible forms or images called in the language of medieval philosophers natural forms. As the mind perceives all kinds of gross natural objects and emits their images into its consciousness, it creates for itself out of this natural function, a certain mode of existence, which bears the stamp of finiteness. The normal life of the soul, in other words, is kept within the limits, determined by our sensory perceptions and emotions. And as long as it is full of these, it finds it extremely difficult to perceive the existence of spiritual forms and things divine. The problem, therefore, is to find a way of helping the soul to perceive more than the forms of nature without its becoming blinded and overwhelmed by the divine light. And the solution is suggested by the old adage, whoever is full of himself has no room for God. All that which occupies the natural self of man must either be made to disappear or must be transformed in such a way as to render it transparent for the inner spiritual reality, whose contours will then become perceptible through the customary shell of natural things. So we're talking about what I guess is called an ego death in the East for lack of a better term, uh, this is experience. You know what,
0: isn't this similar to what we exposed a couple years ago, Gregory Bateson and Alan Watts' double bind when they split the mind and get it caught in a thing that you really can't get out of like that, that, that split personality state? That would be a double bind, wouldn't it? And I'd have to go back and look at my notes on it, but that seems very similar along these
1: lines. Yeah, and, and Lloyd Lloyd made the point that uh, you know, Islam has uh, has a higher rate of schizophrenia than any other religion, because it's a split. They we call themselves the religion of peace, and yet when you read the Quran, it's a religion of violence.
0: Yeah, right. And what was it? You know, most most of the religion is about how to treat and kill and rape and murder others who aren't part of the religion or to force them into the religion and not just, uh, you know, it has nothing to do with peace. The only, you know, the only, the the, there's two, you know, forms of jihad. One is killing everybody who doesn't believe, and then the other is like the internal, you know, that they claim. And that's what they promote as the peaceful one. But they, you know, like to play down the the other part that's about killing everyone who's not uh, Islamic.
1: Yep. Pretty much, but the cultural jihad, yeah. All right, and so anybody, who,
0: anybody who mentions the facts and primary citations is called Islamophobic. Uh,
1: uh, you, yeah, I'm, I, you know what, I'm just scared of guys with swords who want to chop off my head. I think it's pretty reasonable.
0: Yeah, did you hear that? Uh, hold on, let me just pull this up here. There was somebody who was killed recently in Saudi Arabia for, what's it? Uh, let me just get it, almost here. Uh, for sending a WhatsApp message. A 16-year-old was beheaded for sending a WhatsApp message. No joke.
1: Okay, so I'm not Islamophobic, okay? I'm just trying to do what I can.
0: Yeah, just, you know, telling the to truth. let people here.
1: know that to even let you know muslims know like i i got a store i go to and you buy stuff from i i i shoot the breeze with those guys you know but come on man let's let's, just be real about it yeah
0: you know it's a lot of people really don't want to discuss the uh the facts this uh, it's on the ron paul website and uh, zero hedge 16 year old uh, behead 16 year old for sending whatsapp message so uh, that's the, the religion of peace. And if you talk about this stuff, it's called uh, Islamophobia. So, yeah. yep. you know, they're the only religion that still stones people to death and, you know, for questioning or, you know, they're the only religion that, that goes around killing everybody just because they have a different belief. You, you either believe in Islam or you're kafir and they can kill you.
1: Yep. That's, it's plain as day. And and it's it's really funny that uh, now, the the new anti semite is the uh, the Islamophobe.
0: are right. Yeah. All right.
1: So it so, going back to the point. So this is about like, you you're getting rid of yourself. Okay, that's important. Like you you, this is about getting self annihilation. Okay, uh, if you've ever taken psychedelic drugs, maybe you've had an experience like this. Abu Lafia therefore casts his eyes round for higher forms of perception, which instead of blocking the way to the soul's own deeper regions, facilitate access to them and throw them into relief. He wants the soul to concentrate on highly abstract spiritual matters, which will not encumber it by pushing their own particular importance into the foreground and thus render illusory the whole purpose of mental purgation. If, for instance, I observe a flower, a a bird, or some other concrete thing or event, and begin to think about it, the object of my reflection has an importance or attractiveness of its own. I am thinking of this particular flower, bird, etc., then how can the soul learn to visualize God with the help of objects whose nature is of such a sort as to arrest the attention of the spectator and deflect it from its purpose?" The early Jewish mystic knows of no object of contemplation in which the soul immerses itself until it reaches a state of ecstasy, such as the passion in Christian mysticism. Abraham Abu Lafia is therefore compelled to look for an, as it were, absolute object for meditating upon. That is to say, one capable of stimulating the soul's deeper life and freeing it from the ordinary perceptions. In other words, He looks for something capable of acquiring the highest importance without having much particular or, if possible, any importance of its own. An object which fulfills all these conditions, he believes himself to have found in the Hebrew alphabet, in the letters which make up the written language. It is not enough, though an important step forward, that the soul should be occupied with the meditation of abstract truths, for even there, it remains too closely bound to their specific meaning. Rather, it is Abu Lafia's purpose to present it to present it with something not merely abstract, but also not determinable as an object in the strict sense. For everything so determined has an importance and an individuality of its own. So, this I mean that's it's a lot of mumbo jumbo about how to like create a schizophrenic experience. Sounds to me. Facing himself upon the abstract and non-corporeal nature of script, he develops a theory of the mystical contemplation of letters and their configurations as the constituents of God's name. For this is the real, and if I may say so, the particularly Jewish object of mystical contemplation, the name of God, which is something absolute, because it reflects the hidden meaning and totality of existence the name through which everything else acquires its meaning and which yet to the human mind has no concrete particular meaning of its own in short abu lafia believes that whoever succeeds in making this great name of god the least concrete and perceptible thing in the world the object of his meditation is on the way to true mystical ecstasy so again there we have it the the point is is to take the meaning of God, to take God's name and render it, uh, what, what did it say? The least concrete and perceptible thing in the world. The least concrete and perci- So, uh, anyway, starting from this concept, Abu Lafia expounds a peculiar discipline which he calls Chokmahat Suruf, i.e. Science of the Combination of Letters. This is described as a method methodical guide to meditation with the aid of letters and their configurations. The individual letters of their combinations need have no meaning in the ordinary sense. It is even an advantage if they are meaningless. As in that case, they are less likely to distract us. True. They are not really meaningless to Abulafia, who accepts the Kabbalistic doctrine of divine language as the substance of reality. According to this doctrine, as I have mentioned in the first lecture, all things exist only by virtue of their degree of participation in the great name of God, which manifests itself through the whole creation. There is a language which expresses the pure thought of God, and the letters of this spiritual language are the elements both of the most fundamental spiritual reality and of the profoundest understanding and knowledge. Abu Lafya's mysticism is a course in this divine language. The purpose of this discipline, then, is to stimulate with the aid of methodical meditation a new state of consciousness. This state can best be defined as a harmonious movement of pure thought, which has severed all relation to the senses. Abu Lafya himself has already quite correctly compared it with music. Indeed, the systematic practice of meditation as taught by him produces a sensation closely akin to that of listening to musical harmonies. The science of combination is a music of pure thought in which the alphabet takes the place of the musical scale. The whole system shows a fairly close resemblance to musical principles applied not to sounds but to thought in meditation. We find here compositions and modifications of motifs and their combination in every possible variety. This is what Abu La'fia himself says about it in one of his unpublished writings. Know that the method of tsaruf can be compared to music for the ears hear the sounds from various combinations in accordance with the character of the melody and the instrument. Also two different instruments can form a combination and if the sounds combine, the listener's ears register a pleasant sensation in acknowledging their difference. The strings touched by the right or left hand and the sound is sweet to the ear. And from the ear, the sensation travels to the heart and from the heart to the spleen, the center of emotion and enjoyment of the different melodies produces ever new delight. It is impossible to produce it, except through the combination of sounds. And the same is true of the combination of letters. It touches the first string, which is comparable to the first letter and proceeds to the second, third, fourth, and fifth in the various sounds combined. And the secrets which express themselves in these combinations delight the heart, which acknowledges it's God and is filled with ever fresh joy. The directed activity of the adept engaged in combining and separating the letters in his meditation composing whole motifs on separate groups, combining several of them with one another and enjoying their combinations in every direction. It is therefore for Abu Lafia not more senseless or incomprehensible than that of a composer. Just as to quote Schopenhauer, the musician expresses in wordless sounds the world once again and ascends to endless heights and descends to endless depths. So the mystic, to him the closed doors of the soul open in the music of pure thought, which is no longer bound to sense. And in the ecstasy of the deepest harmonies, which originate in the movement of the letters of the great name, they throw open the way to God. This science of the combination of letters and the practice of controlled meditation is according to Abu Lafia, nothing less than the mystical logic, which corresponds to the inner harmony of thought in its movement towards God. The world of letters, which reveals itself in this discipline, is the true world of bliss. Every letter represents a whole world to the mystic who abandons himself to its contemplation. Every language, not only Hebrew, is transformed into a transcendental medium of the one and only language of God. And as every language issues from a corruption of the aboriginal language Hebrew, they all remain related to it. In all his books, Abu Lafia likes to play on Latin, Greek or Italian words to support his ideas. For in the last resort, every spoken word consists of sacred letters and the combination separation and reunion of letters reveal profound mysteries to the Kabbalist and unravel to him the secret of the relation of all languages to the holy tongue. So there it is. They're taking portions of the Talmud and the Torah They're taking those letters, which are only consonants. Okay, guys? Only consonants. It's a Semitic language. They didn't use vowels. The vowels are implied.
0: So let me just add here, Terrence McKenna, who was, uh, of course, uh, you know, one of the CIA MK ultra guys promoting psychedelics, he would state, if I remember how he said it correctly... If you know the words that the world is made of, you can make of the world what you wish. That was his sophist spin. And, and, you know, it sounds like he took it exactly from this.
1: Yeah, and wasn't that what the, the the dancing machine elves were doing? Didn't they have little constructs they were toting around?
0: Yeah, you know, and he said that in uh, Alien Dreamtime, I think, which uh, you know, <laughs> you're talking about <laughs> the machine elves, you know, but that's uh, the one where they're playing the dingery do and whatnot, and then he's like, if you know the words, the world is made of, you can make of it what you wish, right? So, um yep yeah you know and so you know it, again it ties this all ties so, back to the so psychedelic
1: that is, guys like i hope alex newman's listening uh oh, oh I, I lost you there i lost you there young you're back. Uh, I see yeah
0: you. uh, yeah i'm back go ahead you're you're saying something about alex
1: yeah come on alex newman did, uh, did i prove it to your satisfaction yet
0: for for uh <laughs> for 10 btc
1: <laughs> the secret talmud come on buddy all right. <laughs> so this, this is the last part on the, uh, on the practice of Abu Lafia. All right. So the state of ecstasy, in other words, represents something like a mystical transfiguration of the individual. This experience of self-identification with one's guide or master and indirectly with God is mentioned several times by Abu Lafia but nowhere does he write about it with complete and utter frankness. The following passage, for instance, is taken from an unpublished fragment called The Knowledge of the Messiah and the Meaning of the Redeemer. This science of mystical combination is an instrument which leads nearer to prophecy than any other discipline of learning. A man who gains his understanding of the essentials of reality from books is called Oh, shoot. Sorry, I messed up there. The science of mystical combinations is an instrument with leads nearer to prophecy than any other discipline or le- of learning. A man who gains his understanding of the essentials of reality from books is called hakam, a scholar. If he obtains it from the Kabbalah, that is to say, from one who has himself obtained it from the contemplation of the divine names, or from another Kabbalist, then he is called Mebin, that is, one who has insight. But if, if his understanding is derived from his own heart from reflecting upon what he knows of reality, then he is called datan, that is, Gnostic. He whose understanding is such as to combine all three, to wit, scholarly erudition, insight obtained from a genuine Kabbalist and wisdom from reflecting deeply upon things, of him I am not indeed going to say that he deserves to be called a prophet, especially if he has not yet been touched by the pure intellect, or if touched, that is to say, in ecstasy, does not yet know by whom. If, however, he has felt the divine touch and perceived its nature, it seems right and proper to me, to every perfected man, that he should be called master, because his name is like the name of his master, be it only in one or in many or in all of his names. For now he is no longer separated from his master, and behold, he is his master, and his master is he. For he is so intimately adhering to him that he cannot by any means be separated from him. For he is he. He is he being a famous formula of advanced Muslim pantheism. So we need to stop here and discuss that a little bit. Okay, so as he's describing your ultimate goal in his practice he is telling you he finishes it by using a muslim saying and it's called a muslim pantheist so to me i would have to say that's a shia it's it's a shia muslim saying because the shia you know they're they're actually they're, so they are there's a certain group in india where they an Ismaili uh, missionary started these like Amrams or whatever you want to call them. And they had Buddhists and Hindus and Sunnis and Shias and they all lived together. But they had to do practice all five of the, the basic tenets of faith, of Islam. So they were allowed to keep their traditions, but they had to follow all the, the five. Interesting. So I, I don't know. That might be... Muslim pantheism and it would be connected to the Ismailis and the Ismailis are connected to Hassani Sabah. Correct. So So, and just as his master who is detached from all matter is called knowledge the knower and the known all at the same time since all three are one in him so also he the exalted man the master of the exalted name is called intellect while he is actually knowing then he is the, also the known like his master. And then there is no difference between them except that his master has his supreme rank by his own right and not derived from other creatures, while he is elevated to his rank by the interme- intermediary of creatures. All right, so notice that he's saying there is an elect, right? It's not, this is saying that the only way that they gain their status is because it's in. Um, uh, uh, comparison to you know the rest of us profane in the supreme state, man and Torah become one. This Abu Lafia expresses very deftly when he supplements the old word from the sayings of the fathers about the Torah turn it round and round, for everything is in it. By the words, for it is holy in thee, and thou art holy in it. So the, the science of the combination of letters, it's you just turn it around, you're spinning it all around in a meditative, you know, crazy making state. To a certain extent, as we have seen, the visionary identifies himself with his master complete identification is neither achieved nor intended all the same. We have here one of the most thoroughgoing interpretations of the meaning of ecstatic experience to which rabbinical Jewry has given birth. Hence the fact that nearly all Kabbalists, who in everything else follow the steps of Abu Lafya, have, as far as I can see, recoiled from this remarkable doctrine of ecstatic identification. Let us take, as an instance, a little tract called Sulam HaAliyah, the Ladder of Ascent, i.e. Ascent to God. Written in Jerusalem by a pious Kabbalist, Rabbi Jedua Albatini, or one of the exiles of Spain. It, conti- it contains a brief statement of Abu Lafia's doctrines and its 10th chapter, in its 10th chapter, which I once had an occasion to publish, describes the path of loneliness, loneliness and the preliminaries of adhesion, in other words, the theory of ecstaticism. But nowhere does it make the slightest mention of all those radical consequences of Abu Lafia's methods and of the images employed by him, although for the rest, its description is interesting and impressive enough. The content of ecstasy is defined by the followers of prophetic Kabbalism by yet another and even stranger term which deserves, for the unexpected turn it takes, the special attention of the psychologist. <laughs> yes, we need more psychologists looking at these people. According to this definition, in prophetic ecstasy, man encounters his own self confronting and addressing him. This occult experience was estimated higher than the visions of light usually accompanying ecstasy. The Midrash says of the anthropomorphic utterances of the prophets, great is the strength of the prophets who assimilate the form of him who formed it, that is to say, who compare man to God. Some Kabbalists, of Abu-Lafia's school, however, interpret this sentence differently. The form being, uh, sorry, cat, the form being compared to its creator, i.e., being of divine nature, is the pure spiritual self of man, departing from him during prophecy. The following fine passage has been conserved by a collector of Kabbalistic traditions. Know that the complete secret of prophecy consists for the prophet in that he suddenly sees the shape of his self standing before him and he forgets his self and it is disengaged from him and he sees the shape of his self before him talking to him and predicting the future. And of this secret, our teacher said, Great is the strength of the prophets who compare the form appearing to them to him who formed it, says Rabbi Abraham Ibn Ezra in prophecy. The one who hears is a human being and the one who speaks is a human being. And another scholar writes, I know and I understand with absolute certainty that I am neither a prophet nor the son of a prophet, that the Holy Spirit is not in me and that I have no power over the divine forward voice. For all these things, I have not been found worthy for I did not take off my dress, nor did I wash my feet. And yet I call heaven and earth to witness that one day I sat down and wrote a Kabbalistic secret suddenly i saw the shape of myself standing before me and myself disengaged from me and i was forced to stop writing so he just the guy just admitted i I have no holy spirit in me but i had a kabbalistic experience okay no holy spirit kabbalistic experience all right the state of ecstasy oh wait, wait, wait This explanation of the occult character of prophecy as self-confrontation sounds like a mystical interpretation of the old Platonic prescript, recognize thyself as behold thyself. And you know what? That Go back to the oracle. Think about the oracle, drugs, Yep. know thyself.
0: Yeah. I was just trying to find that... Uh... Stupid quote in this Leary book.
1: <laughs> yeah, all right. Uh, <clears throat> the state of ecstasy as described by Alu Abu La'fia frequently, so it seems on the basis of personal experience, also carries with it something like an anticipatory redemption. The Illuminate feels himself not only aglow with heavenly fire, but also, as it were, anointed with sacred and miraculous oil. He becomes, as Abu La'fia puts it, by playing upon the double meaning of the Hebrew word "mashiah. The Lord's anointed. So you see, he's trying to teach everyone how to be their own Messiah. Okay? I So as a Christian, that's no bueno. So, yes, he is, so to speak, his own Messiah, at least for the period of his brief ecstatic experience. Abu Lafia calls his method the path of the names in contrast to the Kabbalists of his time whose doctrine concerning the realization of the divine attributes it referred to as the path of the Sephiroth. Only together, the two paths form the whole of the Kabbalah, the path of the Sephiroth, the rabbinical, and that of the names of the prophetic Kabbalah. The student of Kabbalah is to begin with the contemplation of the ten Sephiroth. These, indeed, during meditation are to become objects of quickened imagination rather than objects of an external knowledge by merely learning their names as attributes or even symbols of God. For in the Sephiroth too, according to Abu Lafia, there are revealed the profundities of the intellectus agents, that cosmic power which for the mystic coincides with the splendor of the Shekinah. Only from there is he to proceed to the 22 letters which represent a deeper stage of penetration. For what he calls the path of names, the ancient Jewish Gnostics, as we have seen, employed another term, namely Merkaba, literally translated the work of the chariot, because of the celestial chariot which was supposed to carry the throne of God, the Creator. Abu Lafia, with his penchant for playing upon words, introduces his new doctrine as the true Merkaba, a term which can be, also be taken to mean combination. The theory of combining the letters and names of God that is the true vision of the merkabah it is true that where it is true that where he describes the seven stages of knowledge of the torah from the inquiry into the literal meaning of the word to the stage of prophecy he draws a distinction between prophetic kabbalism which is the sixth stage and the holy of holies which is merely the preliminary the substance of this final stage in which the language which comes from the active intellect is inder- understood It may not be divulged even if it were possible to clothe it in words. But as we have seen, Abu Lafia himself, despite this solemn vow, has lifted a corner of the veil. In short, Abu Lafia is before all else what one might call an extremely, uh, an eminently practical Kabbalist. It is true that in Kabbalistic parlance, practical Kabbalism means something entirely different. It simply means, magic, though practiced by means which do not come under a religious ban, as distinct from black magic, which uses demonic powers and probes into sinister regions. The fact is, however, that this consecrated form of magic, which calls out the tremendous powers of the names, is not very far removed from Abu La'fia's method. If the sources from which he drew the elements of his doctrine are investigated more closely, a task which is outside the scope of this lecture, it becomes plain that all of them, both Jewish and the non-Jewish, are in fact closely connected with the magical traditions and disciplines. This is true both of the ideas of medieval German Hasidism, which seem to have made a deep impression upon him, and the tradition of yoga, which in devious ways has also influenced certain Muslim mystics, and with which he, may have become acquainted during his oriental travels. So there we have it right there. even the even the guy who's the professional in all this seems to think that this guy has been influenced by Muslim mystics, okay? And all right, well, I'm almost down at the end of this and then I'll have some some more to say. All there right. are certain points there are certain points at which the belief of the mystic easily becomes that of the magician. And Abu Lafia's magic of inwardness, which I have just outlined, is one of them. Although he himself escaped the danger of sliding insensibly from the meditative contemplation of the holy names into magical practices aimed at external objects, many of his successors fell into confusion and tended to expect from the inward path the power to change the outer world. The magician's dream of power and lordship over nature by mere words and strained intention found its dreamers in the ghetto also informed manifold combinations with the theoretical and practical interests of mysticism proper. Historically, Kabbalism presents itself almost invariably as a combination of the two. Okay. Did you just hear him? Ka- Kabbalism is practical interest. Okay, what did he just say? Practical means magical. So there it is. Abulafi's doctrine of combination came to be regarded by later generations as the key, not only to the mysteries of divinity, but also to the exercise of magical powers. So in the OTO, they have... um, A certain, uh, they have, you know, they got a couple of different things that you can get involved in in the OTO. One of them, though, is uh, Enochian vision magic. Enochian vision magic originates from John Dee. John Dee was an occultist in Queen Elizabeth's court, I think. uh, And he got together with this fellow who um, could go into trances. And, you know, would let himself be taken over by spirits and they would speak through him. So what the spirits did with John D. is they came and gave John D. a new alphabet. And the purpose of Enochian vision magic is predicated on the fact that the symbols mean nothing. So they just started out meaning nothing. And now they're just these really satanic looking lots of z's uh ways of using this practice so the oto the oto is doing this they're using this guy's practice as it has been modified by john d and probably themselves and i guess it works Uh, if it didn't work i guess all these people wouldn't be doing it So speaking of it working, we're we're here on the, how, how much time we got left? Well, I mean, how far into it, are we? Well, now? we're
0: almost at two hours here. How much time you uh, got? What page are we on?
1: Uh, we're on the last one now. So.
0: A's disciple.
1: Yeah. So now, now we've got an anonymous disciple of, um, here, you
0: want to just wrap it up or, you know, just, uh, summarize this.
1: Um, sure. Because I really only want, I really only want to, I really only need to tell this first part. I'll, we will make this available to other people. So one second here. Let me, let me see what I want to do. Yeah. Okay. All, really, all I want to do is I really want to point out that this is Gnosticism and Jewish, Jewish Gnosticism is not Judaism. All right. <clears throat> of the attractive powers of these ideas and practices, we possess a very precious testimonial. An anonymous disciple of Abu Lafayyaz wrote a book in 1295, apparently in Palestine, in which he sets forth the basic ideas of prophetic Kabbalism, discussing three paths of expansion, i.e., of the progress of the spirit from reality to an ever-pure spiritual apprehension of objects, he has interpolated an autobiographical, autobiographical account. In it, he describes very accurately and without doubt, reliably his own development, as well as his experiences with Abu La'fia and the latter's Kabbalah. He does not name Abu La'fia, but from the description he gives and the kindred ideas he employs, there can be no doubt to whom he alludes. This book is called *The Gates of Justice*. Okay. I so-and-so, one of the lowliest, have proved my heart for ways of grace to bring about spiritual expansion, and I have found three ways of progress to spiritualization, the vulgar, the philosophic, and the kabbalistic way. The vulgar way is that which, so I learned, is practiced by Muslim ascetics. They employ all manner of devices to shut out from their souls all natural forms every image of the familiar natural world. Then, they say, when a spiritual form, an image from the spiritual world enters their soul, it is isolated in their imagination and intensifies the imagination to such a degree that they can determine beforehand that which is to happen to us. Upon inquiry, I learned that they summon the name Allah as it is in the language of Ishmael. I investigated further and I found When they pronounce these letters, they direct their thought completely away from every possible natural form. And the very letters Allah and their diverse powers work upon them. They are carried off into a trance without realizing how, since no Kabbalah has been transmitted to them. This removal of all natural forms and images from the soul is called with them effacement. All right, now I'm not going to go through the whole thing, but the guy describes his process uh, he sat down in the night he was right scrambling up all the letters doing all the things practicing his little meditation trying to extract abstract it until a point where he separates well uh, he he succeeds partially something happens to him so he tells his master and his master goes oh, i told you not to do that and he said but i couldn't help myself and he said Ah, that's good. That's a very good student. You sh- you're ready for the next step, then, because you did what you shouldn't. So this is what you should do now and the next night. And he said, efface yourself. So over and over again, Abu Lafia as the final word on what he has to say, uses Muslim terms. Okay? He uses Muslim terms, Islamic Muslim terms, to describe what he's conveying to people and look more in this book that I didn't have time to 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 get it all it would have been too long but the process of doing this is you are gripped and you are made if you are forced to speak so what is Muhammad's experience in the cave he is gripped and he is forced to speak he's forced to read well, what did Abu Lafia tell us? He told us that the real words are in the Gnostic realm, and they only make sense once you have broken free from the sense realm. All right. So, as far as I can tell, this is all satanic. <laughs> it's, it's all craziness. It's, it's all, it's all Gnosticism, and uh, Gnosticism believes that the God of Christianity is the prisoner, is the, is, the, is the prison warden of the world of sense things, and they want out. And all the rest of us are like a big like cloud over their party, and they want to get rid of us because we believe in rationality, we believe in compassion and and Christ, and they don't care. They want to do whatever it is they want to do. I I don't really understand it. They they want they want to be their own god in in a mystical realm of imagination. I that's what I got to say about it. I don't know. These people are kind of crazy.
0: Somebody is asking or saying there's a difference between dogma and spirituality as I understand it. On the 7th day God rested. Never read anything about the 7th day ending but um you know it's it's interesting uh how antithetical all of this is to logos which is where we get the word logic or you know it's also related to reason to truth etc logic is the art of well, non logic it's... is the art of non contradictory identification so wow yeah. ernesto holy moly uh Ernesto just uh, made a $400 donation. I really appreciate it. Wow. Thank you so much. Um, You know, uh, that's just unbelievable. I really greatly appreciate that. Um, Ernesto is always to the rescue. God bless you, sir. (laughs) and uh so what was i saying now i lost i just saw this thing pop up now i lost my train of thought But we're talking about logos yeah so logos
1: means word too
0: right and and the word it's yeah exactly so it's the word but it's the word in logic in reason in truth whereas they scramble that's the root of it they scramble it it to make it mean nothing to cause a schizophrenic split yeah. You know, and so this is the foundation of the mysticism and the Kabbalah, you know, yes. or or the, the n- non-Rabbinic Kabbalah and Gnosticism.
1: Yes, non-Rabbinic.
0: You know, uh, so uh, anyway, Ernesto says uh, evil has a short shelf life, loss of self. Logos gives core gratification and happiness. Sick world. Well, thank you for your logos there, Ernesto, and uh it's hugely appreciated.
2: Yeah, yeah man, ma-
0: ma- Mama bear says that beats the one hundred thumbs down from the GDL shills. Exactly right, you know. So uh, you know, really appreciate that. And uh you know, I want to read one more quote because like I you know, we we've mentioned psychedelics a few times and Leary's book and how Leary took his pilgrimage to follow Hasani Sabah in the desert and all of that connects to this um, you know, with all of these guys. And I've talked about Hassani Sabah on the show before, but, uh, I had sent you a quote earlier today that's in the uh, notes for this talk. And I wanted to read that. It's from John Uri Lloyd. The book is called, and this is really hard to pronounce because it's, uh, Aphrodite backwards, but it's Etidorpa. And he says in the notes in that book, and I was trying to find it earlier today to show you, I couldn't find it, but at least I had it in, my, in one of my articles on the website. If in the course of experimentation, a chemist should strike upon a compound that in traces only would subject his mind and drive his pen to record such seemingly extravagant ideas as are found in the hallucinations herein pictured, would it not be his duty to bury the discovery from others, to cover from mankind the existence of such noxious, such a noxious fruit of the chemist or pharmacist, uh, yeah, pharmacist art? Introduce such an intoxicant and start it to ferment in humanity's blood, and before the world were advised of its possible results. Might not the ever increasing potency gain such headway as to destroy or debase our civilization and even to exterminate mankind? Yeah,
1: take and take it. It's eighteen ninety five, guys. 1895. So th- this is this is older than we know. The nineteen sixties and all that that was that was just them starting to show themselves.
0: Right, exactly. Well, you know, and they had showed themselves in the Lucinian Mysteries in ancient Greece, coming out using that as Mm -hmm. mind control. But Leary going on this uh, pilgrimage for Hassani Sabah in Algeria when he was on the run from, uh, well, he had escaped from uh, Slow or San Luis Obispo prison up in uh, central California on the coast there and then you know the whole story it appears that he was set up and then a cia agent uh, uh and his lover uh, uh oh goodness what was her name and i mentioned it to you earlier uh
1: oh yeah ah. uh,
0: good grief man um joanna hardcore brace uh, hardcore Yov- Yovanovich, you know so uh, she was his lover, and then I think she later married uh, John Lamb Lash, bum-bum-bum, who, of course, promotes all the Gnostic stuff, right?
1: Yeah, oh, yeah. And yeah, he was right. running
0: the Gnostic cult in Spain, and I made uh, the mistake of of uh, interviewing him, like, in year one of my show, you know? So, uh, you know, it's like... Uh, all of this stuff starts coming full circle. We got this, we got the Gnostics we've got, you know, it ties into Islam. And, uh, so, you know, we start seeing this whole, uh, like major tie in from all these different directions, you know?
1: Oh, well, yeah. And, uh, I, I'd like to do another show cause I found a lot of connections, <laughs> uh, a lot of connections. It, cause I honestly, Well, we can get into it. But Nazi Germany Nazi Germany is was one hundred percent inspired by Islam. Okay, guys. Like just period. Period.
0: Yeah, and that's been a hard you know, for both of you and I to accept and that's why all these uh GD GDL shills are here attacking my channel and stuff, because we've been exposing this and they're allied with of course the neo Nazis and they're allied with Islam and everything and we're breaking out beginning to question all of this stuff and and discovering going through the citations and saying, hey, wait a second, you know, so, you know, our loyalty is to Logos and or truth, which it always truth. has been. And, you know, if I do a 180 and say, wait a second, why is that why are we focused on the sixteen million Jews and ignoring the, you know, one point two or one point eight million uh Islamists, you know, and we see yeah. all of this this funding, we see all of these connections to you know, Hassani Sabah, Sabatai Zevi, all of these guys going into Islam. And, you know, that that was uh, uh, Hassani Sabah, again, created the assassins. That's the art of infiltration and assassination, you know. Yep. And, and he used drugs to do it, Tim Leary. And, uh, you know, Tim Leary's on the pilgrimage worshiping this guy. Aleister Crowley worships this guy. Aleister Crowley founds the OTO. I think I've got a quote in here about Aleister Crowley saying that he was in the same, uh, you know, uh, group or club or whatever as, uh, as um, Muhammad, you know, so I need to find that quote wherever I put it, it might be in the database, but, you know, so when you realize that all of these things, you know, we went through the, the secret societies and whatnot fraternities at the beginning that tie into uh that tie into uh Islam, then you start seeing all these connections, but everybody is sitting there, you know, banging that it's the Jews, it's the Jews, it's the Jews and nobody, you know, thinks about bait and switch. Hey, what if it's over there? You know, which is a common tactic. You know, and and we've exposed this type of stuff so much. So You know, just because we switch directions and start looking another way doesn't mean we're sold out or we're shills or protecting the Jews (laughs) or anything. It means we're dedicated to finding the truth, uh, period. So I'm going to have to find that, that uh, I was just looking for it in the database over here, but I'm going to have to find that uh, quote uh, from Alistair Crowley saying that he was in the same... Grouper Club, and if one of you in the audience has it and wants to uh, send that to me, that would be uh, great as well. Would like to find that quote, but uh, somewhere it might be in one of these links here as well, so I'll have to find that. But then, you know, we see him stating straight out that he was in this this, uh, uh, same fraternity as Muhammad was. So why would we call the OTO a Jewish organization? That's absurd. You know, if he's influenced by Islam and all of this Islamic and Gnostic mysticism, we need to look that direction. And so, uh, you know, it's like people, you know, telling us, uh, oh, don't you dare swim upstream and look the other direction. Don't don't you dare follow the citations and look at the facts. You know, I mean. I know, it's, it's ridiculous.
1: I was just talking to my folks uh Yesterday, and I was explaining to him how my my thought has been revolutionized by 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 actually like taking Islam seriously. I never took it seriously before. Yeah, me either.
0: It was just like, oh, well, they're a bunch of poor third world countries, and then you go, wait a second, they got all the oil money, Saudi Arabia, yada yada. These these countries are ancient, and a lot of them are like Iran and Iran, Persia, etc. And they have lots of babies. And they have lots of babies, and they you know, and then you realize that most Islamic countries used to be Christian. So that means like about, you know, near 60 Christian countries have been conquered and converted to Islam. And then you have to say, wait a second, you know, is it so wrong to question these things? You know, is it so wrong to suggest, hey, wait a second. What if the government did tell the truth about nine eleven? Oh my God! You know, Jon Irvin, you've you're you're a shill for sure now. You know, so uh, it's just uh, well,
1: yeah, but I mean, come on, man. Just, the, well, you know, it's like his family flying out on the plane, the Bush the, family being friends. Yeah,
0: God. well, and then you have uh, you know, Lloyd was talking about Osama bin Laden's twenty one year plan, and we're at the end of the you know the last three years of it now. And I had n- never even heard or considered that. And Lloyd starts breaking it down, and it's like, wait a second, this is all exactly happening. Right. So
1: I, I agree. It's, I agree it is an Islam job. But this, the, the story they gave us, the official story is crap.
0: Right. Well, and I'm not saying no, is there Islam weren't uh, Silverstein and these people involved in yeah. it. You know, it well, just.
1: Crypto, crypto Jew means you're a, you're a Gnostic Jew, which means you are, are friends with any Gnostic. Who has any practice that you want that makes you richer and more powerful and have a more fun life? That doesn't the demiurge isn't raining on your party.
0: Yeah. Yep. So uh, you know they just they got to uh, spin everything. You know you got to throw out the hate and you know got to got to make make people think that hey you know we're we're loyalists to certain groups because. We dared to check the citations, you know, and i gotta i gotta get that uh, Talmud paper done uh tomorrow. I'm hoping i'm gonna spend a lot of time on it tonight as well but uh if if I can get that done right away, that's going to be uh you know that's going to show once and for all that this you know these these fake and taken out of context Talmud quotes that everybody constantly uh sites or it's complete garbage, you know? Yeah. And, yeah. you know, I did go on, uh, you know, Alex Jones's producer called me or uh, texted me yesterday morning. And uh, she asked me to come on. I said, no, I got to put this out. I'm, you know, all of this stuff is happening with these fake Talmud quotes and trying to stop another mass shooting. And it turned out they were talking about the, the synagogue shooting in San Diego and Poe this weekend. And so she had asked me to Please come on. And I actually, you know, I got the text messages to prove it, argued with her that I didn't want to. So I ended up going on uh, Alex Jones' show yesterday. It was like a half hour, 40 minutes, and broke down a lot of this stuff. And you saw it, but, you know, I didn't even mention it because of all these, you know, GDL shills. We wanted to get the jump on them a little bit there. But, you (laughs) know, the information is starting to get out. They're, uh, you know, they're just... You know, yeah. they're, they're, you know, you know yeah. once, once this stuff is proved that it's all fake, you know, and that the GDL and the KKK and the neo-Nazis are, are who's putting this stuff out and the Islamists, then, you know, it's exposed. So, you know, so people, oh, yeah. people need to stop looking in the wrong direction. And there's nothing wrong with looking at the Crips and the Bloods. How many times did we say that in the series with, uh, right, with exactly. Lloyd, you know?
1: And so I and, hope that this study goes to show, like, hey, you know, we're not, we're not here to, like, we just showed you what the weirdos in of Kabbalah do. Okay. Just showed you what it was. So now you don't need to like be freaked out about it anymore. And there's a secret Talmud, this and that. No, they're just a bunch of autists with a pen and paper sitting around in the dark with staring at a candle, writing stuff down until they have a. So has Jan
0: ever considered the fact that fallible men will be interpreting these Talmudic laws? Um, generic have you ever thought like of actually like checking the laws them yourself and actually like reading it and there's nine like translations rather than like spewing bullshit you got from hate groups and then thinking you're like smart
1: (laughs) and come on dude you live in a society of laws we have a whole profession of people and they spend days and months trying to figure out how to like properly interpret this stuff <laughs> so you, it's a problem of mk like, says life.
0: that sarcasm relax. it's like yes that was sarcasm <laughs>
1: relax dude it's gonna be fine yeah so it's I, gonna, yeah
0: you know it's like and, hey
1: and i got i got you do get in my sights next pal
0: great non-answer he says um i just answered your stupid question it's like consider the fact that fallible man will be interpreting these talmudic laws um, what the Talmudic laws are, they're breaking down different crimes ad infinitum to a logical conclusion. That's That
1: are based on the Torah, the
0: that Bible. Are, that are based on the Torah, the Bible. So if you read the Bible, and then you can understand the foundation, and then you go in there, and you—and it's like a law book, and they're debating back and forth, and it's called Pilpul or peppering, and they break each point down, and they take every extreme position until it's broken down to the log- you know, to the logical conclusion. So you know, rather than saying, uh, you know, rather look, this is
1: wait, look, look, real quick. That's the rational Kabbalism, Okay, you take two, you take two, right? The paradox. You take two constricting things, and then what you do is you argue about it to get them to a rational response.
0: Right, right. That's uh- that's that's the good. Logic. That's logos. That's truth to a logic logos conclusion, not to some scatterbrained, you know, mix the letters up and uh, come to, you know, some ridiculous conclusion. But, um, you know, it's like it's 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 a guide to understanding. But I would suggest to whomever is behind the sock account generic to. Actually, you know, use your, this, this gray matter between your ears and go read it and look at it and understand it yourself. I mean, you know, it, it, you know, it brings you to a whole new understanding of what it is. I've read five or 600 pages of the Talmud at this point. It's dreary and boring legalese, like you're reading a Harvard law book all day long. It's not fun, but you get what it's really about. And it's like, wait a second. You know, they're talking about just every kind of crime and breaking it down. And it's like, wait a second, our society is based on laws and rules. So, you know, it's it's about learning how to think rather than just saying, you know, it's evil. It's the Talmud. Oh, it's a conspiracy because I never read it and because there is a bunch of KKK, neo-Nazi, GDL crap floating around. So, therefore, it's got to be evil. I mean, eventually... You know, all of these people spreading that stuff, they're either going to have to come clean that it's wrong or they're going to be exposed as frauds. And that's that's it. That's the only, you know, possible outcome on it.
1: Yep. You know, they're just it's really sad because it's it's like, yeah, we've lost our tribalism. And I know you GDL people are, you know, some of you are, you know, not not the most well-educated. I didn't have the most loving parents. I'm sorry about that. I know life's <laughs> probably been real rough. I mean it. Well, I mean, and they have to have right. somebody
0: to blame for all their problems, you know.
1: And, and I and I know it feels really good to be part of a gestalt. If you guys even know what that is, a herd mindset. Stuck in a gestalt, guys. It's a literal thing.
0: Moo. It
1: can feel really satisfying. Okay, it feels. You got good. your
0: your leaders, your Patrick Little yeah. and your your John Menadeos, your your handsome truth, your goy Mob, your Albert Bishies to tell you what to think and who to go to attack, and and you all you guys all go on your little hive mind, your little you know herd <laughs> moo moo yeah. stuff, and then you go attack channels that tell the truth. You know, I yeah. mean, it's like it, it, there is no it really, higher there, cowardice, really. You know.
1: Well, it's it's your pent up hate, rage, anger. And in essence, your um, your powerlessness has driven you to do this, guys. Okay? Yeah, get well, you well Feel put. powerless, right? Now you have to. You all of you are so powerless that you have to congregate together. And then when you're all together in your powerlessness, then you got a little bit of power, and then you get more and more. And then, and then, then,
0: if you can find funding by some like Bay Area billionaire to go spread your hate and try to shut down free speech and you know blame right. christians for your islamic uh, nazi rhetoric which is totally a false association then you can you know go about your day you get a little paycheck and you you think you've done something good for the world all, all you've done is spread lies and hate and attack innocent people and got people to be a part of a group and, and got to be I a to part pickle. of a group think you know and <laughs> We're so funny you know they here. got to name but call you know and they they get to name call they get to spread false accusations against christians et cetera. so you know, that's that's what they're all about.
1: Yeah, they, they, it's it's an, it's a nihilism. They don't care. They're just angry, and they want someone to be bad at, and they like being part of a group. They're stuck in a gestalt, and uh, I hope you guys get out of it. If not, get ready for the new McCarthy and area. And there's
0: some there's some people that were involved with them that have woken up to it as well and realized well, what good. it really glad, is. But you know, they're all a bunch of look, they're all a bunch of I frauds.
1: Just told my parents yesterday and they're like, oh, my God, you don't hate the Jews anymore. I said, no. Like, what happened to you? And I said, I follow the truth. And I realized there are 16 million Jews and and they they don't want to kill me. Their religion doesn't want to kill me.
0: And you start reading, okay? You, you read the the Old Testament and you read the Talmud and you and you actually get an understanding of what these things are. It's like, oh my goodness, it's like a Harvard law book.
1: Yeah, it's uh, boring. It's a was, boring I, law book. I opened book. it up. And I was reading it. I was like, all right, let's read it. I'll fall. I was like, oh no, I'm gonna let. It doesn't
0: let me mean on. we're like you know Jewish. It doesn't <laughs> mean we're pro-Israel or pro-Zionist or any of this stuff. It just no. means we had the brains to open the books and read them. That's it.
1: Yep. Yeah. And then once you – so even if you're skeptical, that's fine. Just just start. Ask yourself a new hypothesis. Like having a, starting from a new hypothesis about how life works is, is not a problem it, so long as you can be confident in, in your capabilities as a person. You don't have to lose your ego – and lose your tribe and lose everything just because you started from a different hypothesis. Right.
0: Just, you know, and just like, you know, just think for a few minutes. What if Jan and Lloyd and Todd are correct and they they didn't like take the money like the GDL shills? And what if they actually provided hundreds and hundreds of on-screen citations and fact-checkable material that we can go out and look up and realize that hey wait a second we've we're, we've been looking the wrong direction blaming the wrong group and you know and and blaming innocent people and trying to cause a genocide see what they're trying to do is they're trying to get Christians to commit a genocide against the Jews now who does that work for K Bono who benefits do the Christians the benefit do the Jews benefit no okay who benefits well oh. Islam benefits. Wait, doesn't Islam teach to kill the Jews? Oh, wait, they do. So wow. then, if you're, you know, the old rule, the enemy of my enemy is my friend, if you're going out doing that stuff, you are working for Islam. You're an Islamic ap- apologist, whether you know it or not, that's what you're doing. You're working to shut down free speech, you're working to shut down valid channels, and you're working for Islam to overrun everything and to bring in their Sharia law and to kill everybody who's not a believer. That's what you're working for. And if that's what you want, I pray for you that you, you know, that you wake up and, you know, smell the coffee. You know, I forgive your your trespasses. I forgive all your, your hatred. And, you know, I just, I pray for you in the name of Jesus that all of you wake up and find your heart because it's not too late to repent and stop your crap.
1: Hallelujah to that, man. Because I'm telling you guys, it, I know it's kind of hard at first to, to humble yourself and admit that you're a faulty person who's going to mess up again and hurt people. But if you just accept that you've got a, a high priest in heaven who's who's interceding with you and making sure that you, you've got some kind of security in life. I'm telling you that you're right. This this world of sense things, it'll go look, away.
0: But... Look, you know, let's, let's put it this way. Because of all of the hate and the fake Talmud quotes that the GDL and the neo-Nazis and the KKK are spreading, somebody was shot and killed this weekend and three people were injured and they were innocent and you guys screwed up. That's on your hands. You know, think That's, about yeah. that, you know. You can be forgiven for this crap, but what you're trying to do is you're trying to bring in genocide by spreading those lies. And, you know, all of you that spread that stuff, not one of you has bothered to go through the Talmud and read it yourself to see what it actually says. Not one of you sits down and reads the Old Testament and goes, duh. You know, not one of you thinks, oh, wait, the Noahide laws are the foundation of the Ten Commandments. You know, we've already exposed this in you know in episode 1 on Judaism with Lloyd. So why do you people keep spreading this stuff? The only th- the only conclusion that it will have is genocide. And it doesn't mean that we're pro Israel or Mossad or that I'm Jewish when I'm Danish and Welsh. Jan, it's a northern European name. I'm Scandinavian. Duh. You know? It doesn't mean any of Asian? that stuff. Yeah, oh yeah. you know what it means is that you guys you paid shills are going around and you're you know you're going to bring about a genocide and eventually after they've killed the jews they're going to go after the christians for that and the christians will be labeled as neo or as nazi nationalists for the hate that you're spreading for the lies that you're spreading who does that work for but satan and islam so get a clue wake up stop that's all I have to say. And suffer
1: the consequences of, uh, you know,
0: yeah, well, your that's
1: eternal reward.
0: That, yeah, <laughs> you suffer the consequences of your eternal reward, exactly. And that's all I have to say for the night. Thanks, everybody. Thank you for the support. Thank you, Ernesto. Uh, thank you. Uh, uh, who, who is that? Now I forget. Jake? Um, sorry if I, I just forgot your name when I went to go say it. Sorry about that. But uh, anyway, that's all I have to say. You got anything to add? We're already at two no, and a half hours. No, I, I just,
1: Thanks. Thanks for doing your show, man. Thanks for making me a smarter person. Thanks to Lloyd.
0: And thanks to you as well for making me a smarter person, because as soon as you admitted that you were wrong, you brought more knowledge and enlightenment to us as well. So thank you too. Yeah, you bet. All right. All right. Good night, everybody. Take care. Much love to the uh, audience. And like I said, I forgive you all. God bless. Bye-bye.